This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You are listening to White Show today. This is one where you're going to get wicked smart. We got the University of Arkansas, my brand new alma mater, as well as NASA. We're going to learn about sustainability in flight and what they're doing with Boeing. We're going to learn about how higher education is forging the next leaders in supply chain. But before we get there, I want to give a shout out to all the moms who are moving America. Roll this clip really quick. This is um, this is Big Truck Amani, a.k.a. Monica Sellers, with her daughter, Camille, out on a run. You guys, parents out there, I'm one. You know how it is, especially when you have young kids and there's no one to take care of them or, you know, you're stuck in daycare where you only have it two days a week and duty calls on the road. I mean, look, my only criticism here is maybe that car seat could be a little bit more secure, but at the same time, all the moms, hardworking parents out there who are getting this done, God bless you. You're doing the Lord's work. Today on the show, we're talking to NASA about its $425 million partnership with Boeing to build, test, and fly a full-scale demonstrator aircraft and validate technologies aimed at lowering emissions. We also have the University of Arkansas, Sam M. Walton School of Business. They're going to take us inside that world of higher education. We're also looking at AI versus the ATA, intra kitchens, cotton candy filled with narcotics, and the mystery of the stolen gorilla. Uh, let's get to tipping the band, and then our first guests are in the green room, so we'll bring them right up. Did you know that AIT publishes a global transportation market report every month? So if your business needs information about air and ocean trends, carrier updates, economic forecasts, North American trucking and customs clearance news, you can get all of that in an easy to digest overview. And best of all, it's free to download. The latest one is up now over at AITWorldwide.com. Head over there and get it for yourself. But right now, I would like to welcome two great guests from NASA who are taking some time out of a, a conference, I believe, they're out to speak with us. It's Sarah Wechter and Brett Kobley. Co I think I got that right. Did I get that right, Brent? You did, Kobley, yeah. Where are you, where are you at? You're, I, I, I thank you for taking the time out of the event you're at. Um, I imagine it's an exciting one. What's going on? Yeah, so uh, we belong to what's called AIAA, it's the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, a big sort of industry association uh, that looks at uh, you know aeronautics and space. And so their biggest conference of the year is this time of year. And so we're in Washington, D.C., actually in Maryland uh, at the National Harbor, um, big event. So they have about 5,700 people here for the conference this week. Oh, wow. Big event. Big event. So uh, you guys will have a great time there. But thanks for taking some time with me to learn about the Sustainable Flight Demonstrator Project. And I saw the headline on this uh, about a week ago when you put the, the, the press release out and it was like $425 million going to Boeing. I shared on social media and a very cynical person said, that'll never work. How are you going to make a 150,000 pound plane uh, any more efficient? And I think they may be wrong. So let's get into it. What is the Sustainable Flight Demonstrator Project? 
So, so I think we've all been flying on commercial airplanes for a long time. When you go out to the airports, the, the, the airplanes don't look much different than they did in the 1940s. We've made them a lot more efficient. Propulsion systems, the engines have gotten a lot more efficient. But the airplanes still look like what we call long tube and wings. It's just got the long fuselage tube that you sit in and then these wings. And like I said, they make them more efficient every year. But the, we're kind of hitting the limit of how much efficiency we can get out of that. You can think of airplane efficiency like fuel mileage in your car. And so, uh, so what we're trying to do is break that model right now. We're trying to change from a standard tube and wing to something that's more efficient. And it's just been very difficult for industry to take that step and like make that huge commitment because designing and, and building a new airplane is literally tens of billions of dollars. It's a big risk. So we've been developing this over several decades, several different configurations. We did a big competition across industry to see what they wanted to take to their next commercial product and then we went through a whole selection process to pick it. And that's how we got with this transonic truss brace wing configuration. You so make we're trying it great. to just push over, push over the, you know, take this public private partnership and push it over the finish line. You make a great point about how planes haven't changed. I mean, you see the memes online of the inside of planes changing the service level, right? Like the first class service level and what's gone on inside with the outside. Yeah, it's the same metal tube with wings that it's been. Sarah, where, where do you come in on the sustainable flight demonstrator project? So I'm the deputy project manager uh, for our project, and and I'm really excited to be a part of this team that hopes to change the way, uh, like Brent was saying, uh, how airplanes look in the future, and also excited for all that comes from um, uh, the impacts of this project to see uh, more sustainable aircraft that helps our uh, helps our earth and everything. I know you were uh, talking earlier about. Uh, parents and children, and I'm very excited for my kids to hopefully see an impact of this change in the future to help uh, the next generation. That very, well, Brent, so you said something interesting there. You said it's a huge risk. It costs a lot of money to develop a new aircraft. So how do you even get something this off the ground? How does NASA approach a project of this scale that is that risky and could cost a lot of money? Yeah, it's been a lot of years in the making. We've been making, you know, we, most of what NASA does is technology development at a lower level, you know. And so we've been working on different configurations for several decades. And uh, like I said, to date, nobody has sort of taken that, run with it, and put it into commercial service. So we kind of stepped back and said, okay, what, what can we do to make it cross that finish line? And that, and that is bring the government together with industry, share in the risk reduction of those technologies, Get them to a point where industry can really make a decision to launch that commercial product in with a you know the confidence that it's going to work. So this project is building that demonstrator aircraft. Sometimes we call them X planes, experimental planes to like take a whole suite of technologies together, take them through all their paces, design, build, fly, um, and then get us to the point where okay, we've confirmed that, and now industry can make a really smart decision going forward. Interesting. So you have the partnership with Boeing, and it got me curious. Is it easier to develop a project like NASA to just do it on their own, or is it easier to bring in a partner, or is it kind of dependent on industry? Obviously, you're building an aircraft. Boeing is a pretty sensible partner. Yeah, so, I mean, a typical technology project at NASA might just include internal NASA. If it's at small levels, we'll do some sort of fundamental research. Sometimes we work with industry, sometimes we work with universities. But as the technology gets further and further along, it tends to get more and more expensive to take the next step. And so I think that's why this, you know, this public-private partnership is, is very, very useful. So sometimes we work with industry, sometimes we work alone. In this case, it really took the two of us bringing resources and expertise together. I mean, NASA has a lot of 
technical expertise. They also have a lot of facilities, like some of the images you're showing right now come from some of our wind tunnels. And so bringing all that together, I think, makes it, you know, the, the, takes up the likelihood that we're actually going to be successful. Sarah, do they let you... add to that? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Is that, um, and Brennan's mentioned, we've studied this uh, airframe for many years, and, and we need the partnership with industry to take it to that next step. So I don't think we could help impact the, uh, the potential for commercial industry to use this in the future without involving them now. Those model planes look really cool in that wind tunnel. Do they let you in that room? What goes on in there? What kind of testing happens at, uh, at that smaller scale? Yeah, there's a whole suite of different types of wind tunnels that we look at. So we're looking at low speed and sort of higher speed, closer to cruise speed. But you also got to look at like landing and takeoff conditions, you know, the whole spectrum of the uh, of the mission. And so you got to look at different uh, configurations of the airplane. So, yeah, you do a wind tunnel test at high speed, then you change the flap settings. You know, you look at landing gear down, landing gear up. Um, you're also actually usually tweaking the design. You know, we'll we'll take a look at the wind tunnel data as we're taking it. And then say, well, what happens if we, you know, put an alternate tail on? Would that make it more efficient? Um, we'll look at a whole suite of different changes to try to improve the uh, aircraft configuration in real time during that test. So when we came out on the other side, we have a model that allows us to sort of simulate the vehicle and validate the aerodynamics and the drag and, and all of that, um, but also improve it during the wind tunnel test. Sarah, is there a goal in mind? Do you have an, an idea or a projection of how much efficiency this will drive? So uh, in partnership with a new aircraft uh, configuration design, in addition to uh, other engine designs and improvements and material improvements, the anticipation is that this could be a 30% efficiency that we would see in the 2030s. Wow. So would this be using the same type of jet fuel we use on commercial airliners now? Or are you looking at all the different variety of alternative fuels that are, are being made? Is that, a, is that a key part of this? How, how will that work? So for our demonstrator, we'll be using uh, the standard uh, jet fuel, but there could be options in the future to look at other uh other alternative fuels, and, and as well as the vision vehicles that would be in the 2030s, they would have uh, whatever the commercial companies uh, want to uh, look more into. Interesting. So big money, 425 million. I think there's a, what, a runway of 700 some odd million. Talk a little bit about that. Where does the funding go to? What happens most immediately? And is that enough for the project? Yeah, this is a very unique way of doing this. NASA Aeronautics has not actually managed a project like this before in this type of partnership. So we're not um, going into it and just saying, hey, we're going to pay whatever it takes to get there. We've told industry we're going to invest a certain amount. So this $425 million is coming from us. We're expecting them to put in about $700-plus uh, million on their side. But if the project slips a little bit, it's actually on them to sort of fill that that overrun cost. So NASA's kind of fixed our cost as like an investor, but then we also bring in, you know, our NASA expertise and engineering and facilities to supplement that. So what's unusual, unusual about this is usually we tell industry, we want you to build this, do something, we, we define it, we define all the requirements and tell them how to, you know, what we want exactly, and then they build to that. In this case, we're saying, you tell us what you want, what you think is an, a good configuration to commercialize, and then back up and tell us, what are the technologies you need to get to the point where you can make a decision to launch that multi-billion dollar um, development effort? So, so they're telling us the plan that they want to take to lower their risk. And then our job is to, among all those proposers, to pick the one we think is you know, most likely to be commercialized, 
has the best efficiency impact, has a good plan to execute. We had a whole suite of evaluation criteria. And then, you know, like you said, Boeing was the one that was selected and we're going forward with them and we're going to help them to be successful. Interesting. You know, there's a term here that I, I'm sure many of us haven't heard before. It's transonic trust brace wing demonstrator. You can kind of see in the picture, but can, like, what makes this different than your traditional commercial airline that we're all used to seeing? I think the, <clears throat> the biggest noticeable difference, and sometimes it's hard to tell in the picture, is a couple things. You know, if you think of birds, you know, smaller birds, they have a certain size wing when you look at them. But when you look at those birds that are out there soaring for long periods of time over the ocean or in the mountains, they have much, much longer wings. And so we've known for a long time that if you take the same sort of wing area and stretch it, make it longer and sort of shorter, we call the short, the cord, um, which is sort of the width when you're looking down on the, on the wing, and you just sort of stretch it out and make longer and longer wings, that's going to be more efficient, more fuel efficient, less drag. The problem is the structure, right? We have this long structure and it turns out to be much, much thinner as well. It's much, it's, you know, that's the challenge is getting a structure that can hold that and still be lightweight because if you're flying an airplane, you need the airplane to be as light as possible. And so you're going to end up with much longer wings. So the salute part of the solution to that is to put this truss in that goes from the bottom of the airplane and sort of meets the, the wing in the mid, the mid part there. So now you have two lifting surfaces but now you have a more rigid structure that can handle those much longer wings and sort of take advantage of that efficiency. We always knew it was there, but we never had the structural design to take advantage of it. The challenge then is you take this long wing airplane into an airport and you want to park it at a gate. Now the airplanes or wingtips are hitting each other. And so the next challenge is most likely we're going to be folding those wings after landing so that you can fit into the gate next to the airplane next to you. And so that's that's the, another challenge that Boeing will have. It's not part of our project, um, but they're already doing that on some advanced airplanes now. So that'll be an interesting thing when the airport, when you see an airplane land and then its wings, wing tips at least fold up. Interesting, you know, because the technology that can drive something like this that can lift, you know, 150,000 pounds up in the air obviously has runoff uses down here on Earth and with other types of aircraft. Where do you see the sort of tech ecosystem developing out of a project like this? Because to me, that's one of the best things about NASA is not only are you shooting rockets up into space, but a lot of the work that goes into making that happen becomes technology we use right here on Earth. Yeah, uh, there's a number of things that could, could spin off here. I mean, the materials is a big one. You, when you're going to lighter and lighter weight materials, we call them like composite materials. So you're not dealing with metals anymore. You're dealing with layers, almost like a, when you think of, most people know what fiberglass is. Now think of an extremely advanced fiberglass, but it's made of carbon. Uh, a lot of the advanced cars now are made uh, with carbon composites. Um, but we have to go to very lightweight and uh, and design it in a way we're taking advantage of all that. So that's, that's an obvious one. Um, in the propulsion systems, I'm sure there's a lot of materials development. Um, like you were mentioning earlier, there's there's a, a lot of people looking at different fuels. So we think the next generation after the one we're working on now, we're talking like 2040s and 50s, there's a lot of people thinking that you know airplanes are going to be powered by hydrogen, um, but also our whole electrical grid may be powered by hydrogen in a lot of ways. So there's a lot of synergy between how do you transport and keep hydrogen safe because it's a very you know dangerous molecule, and how do you store it? How do you transport it? So there's a lot of technologies there that I think will have technologies flowing from industry to, to, to the aviation industry and also from the aviation industry back to other industries. 
What implications do you think this could have for logistics? You know, um, our listeners, because they, they know air freight, probably are aware that most commercial jets have belly cargo, for example. What kind of uh, impact to logistics do you think that this would have? You know, I, you know, uh, Boeing has a, a, a forecast that's public that they put out to everybody about because, you know, Boeing's the biggest airplane, big airplane manufacturer in the U.S. So they put out a forecast. And so f- between now and 2041, they believe that there's going to be at least another thousand airplanes developed just to do freighter and another 1,800 after that that are going to be like converted older airplanes into freighter. So they think there's going to be addition of 2,800 freighter airplanes. These are the airplanes that FedEx, and UPS, and Amazon would use on a daily basis. So, so those are just dedicated entire airplanes for cargo. And then, like, like you mentioned, pretty much every airplane that's flying has some cargo in it in the cargo compartment. And so that's also part of the, the overall system. So, um, you know, technology like we're talking about, Boeing's projection for these smaller, you know, these single aisle airplanes that the truss bracing would fill, you know, is at least 31,000 airplanes in the next 20 years, new, replacing older generation airplanes, many of those. But some of them are just the fact that more and more people are flying globally. And so the quantity of airplanes flying is, is also going up. Um, there are predictions also that um, air cargo will go up about 4% a year in that same time period. So every year, 4% more cargo traveling in airlines um, for the next 20 years. That's a, that's a pretty huge increase. No, it sure is. And it's great that you're working towards solving some of this. But what would the timeline be? What are we looking at for a project like this before we see some of these up in the air? So uh, our project plans to fly by 2028, and that, again, would be a demonstrator aircraft. And uh, the hope is then to test out these technologies so that way industry can look to have these type of technologies in uh, airports that you fly in in the 2030s. Wow. So I've got a question, too. I'm always curious about NASA. I know. And we've actually got some students that are coming on after you from the University of Arkansas. A lot of people, NASA is a dream gig to land at, especially doing logistics. And I'm curious, what is the hardest? Let's start with Sarah. What is the hardest problem you've had to solve so far at NASA? Um. I would say one of the most interesting uh, problems that I had to work on is when I worked in the shuttle program, we had birds that kept getting in the way during shuttle launches. And they actually hit one during a shuttle launch. The tank uh, hit the bird and it rolled off the, the side of the tank. And the concern was, what if it hit the orbiter? And so actually I had to go out at the launch pad and test out lasers, noise, horns, all kinds of different things to see uh, the, what would scare the birds away in a um, in a way that wouldn't hurt them. And so it was one of those uh, tests that wasn't uh, as technical. It wasn't something you could test in a wind tunnel, but it was definitely more interesting because uh, you got to work with nature and, and see how, uh, how it worked. What worked? I have a leering owl in my backyard. <laughs> Actually, they end up getting bird radar because these birds come from so far away. They had to be able to see how the flock uh, would come into the area. So during shuttle launches, uh, they end up having bird radar to track them. Wow, that was really unexpected. I would not have predicted that answer. Brent, how about you? What's the hardest thing you've had to do? Probably the most challenging was a, a project called uh, SOFIA, the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy. So NASA had the world's largest flying observatory. So we, um, we observatory, uh, Astronomers sometimes look in different frequency bands. So one of the bands that they like to look at is infrared. 
problem with looking at infrared from the ground is that the water in our the Earth's atmosphere absorbs all the infrared or most of it. And so you can't really see well from the ground. So you either have to put a, a telescope in space, like the new James Webb Space Telescope we just launched, or you have to put it in an airplane and fly as high as you can above most of the water vapor. So Sophia was a 747 aircraft that we put a Hubble-sized uh, mirror inside of it, eight-foot diameter mirror, um, to be able to collect the light from looking at uh, targets in space and the, into an instrument in the airplane. And so we had to put a huge door, like the world's biggest garage door, on the side of a 747. So when we get up to 40,000 feet, this huge door would open, collect all the science data for like 10 hours, and we'd have like 30 people on board the airplane, scientists collecting all this data, looking at you know the center of our galaxy at black holes, um, looking at star formation and all that. But this team of several hundred people designing these complex missions, flying four or five times a week, 10 hours in the middle of the night, and getting this system that you can imagine this huge hole in the side of a 747 and, and, to, and do it in a way that the airplane is still safe to fly. Um, that was an extremely challenging project. And that airplane flew science missions for um, roughly 10 years. I can't remember the exact number, but we just retired it because now the James Webb Telescope as in orbit and being able to collect sort of the next advancement in infrared astronomy. Wow. So Sarah, what has been like your NASA moment, you know, when you, cause I was looking at your bio and you've done a lot of stuff over there, but was there a moment you're like, I am doing really awesome and cool stuff. And I love that this is my job. Um, I'd say shuttle launches were right up there, but I think one of the really amazing things was to, um, we did similar to what we're doing with uh, our project is in commercial crew. I got to work with SpaceX and Boeing and other companies that were building spacecrafts for all of us to go to space for a vacation or a science experiment. And I found that to be so amazing and something that I hope one day my family can go and, uh, take a little trip into space. But I thought that was really a, a defining moment. Yeah, I wish we could do this podcast in space. How about you, Brent? <laughs> um, you know, one thing that's interesting about our work is engineering is not a solo sport, right? We, 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 we sort of celebrate these great inventors, but the problems we solve today are much more complex than a one-person thing, right? It's all a huge team sport. Engineering is a team sport. And so you need very specialists in all kinds of different fields. So it's really fun to do that. The project that um, was sort of most fun or you know, early career was I was on a project called Autonomous Formation Flight, where we were trying to, it's funny that she was mentioning bird stories. If you see birds flying, sometimes you see them flying this V pattern when they're you know, flying south for the winter. There's a reason for that. It's because everybody who's not the leader can sort of surf the wave coming off the bird in front of them. There's a vortex on the wingtip and you can kind of surf that and get potentially like 20% less energy to fly behind. And so we, were, we decided, hey, can we do that with airplanes? And so we actually got some F-18 airplanes we had at our, uh, our facility out in California. And we flew uh, airplanes in formation and sort of mapped out the benefits. And sure enough, you get about 20% uh, benefits for an airplane like that. And the pilots had a blast trying to fly in the vortex. They were competing with each other. But we needed controls engineers, structures engineers, aero engineers, um, instrumentation engineers, you know, and technicians to wire everything and, and test everything out. And so it's just a whole team sport of people to get it. And so when you, when you, when you achieve that success, it's just such a great um, celebration across the team. It's a really good feeling. And so, you know, NASA technology is what people hear about, but it's really the people that make that. 
make See, that those happen. annoying launch birds have been redeemed now. And, and if you think about it, man, has we've kind of stolen a lot from the birds, so we do owe them a, a bit of gratitude. They, they've kind of shown us the way of, of the sky. I have two quick questions before I let you go. The first one is I ask everyone from NASA, because I'm always curious. Start with you, Sarah. What's the best space movie? Best space movie? Um... I don't want to say Armageddon, but I'm going to say that one. It's <laughs> good. It's got a good Aerosmith track. <laughs> That's, true. That's true. And you guys kind of stopped it. So, would, so in that movie, you've probably thought about this. Would it make more sense to send a bunch of astronauts to drill on an asteroid? Or would it, would it make more sense to send a bunch of drillers and then like one astronaut leader like they did in the movie? <laughs> well, I actually worked on a project. We looked to send a robot to an asteroid and actually try to grab a rock from the asteroid and... And then eventually at some point send the astronauts to that separate rock that we would have uh, in, a, in a certain orbit. So we did actually have looked at, at many different configurations. Not really an Aerosmith uh, soundtrack, but still cut it in our own little dirty way. I love it still. It's a good movie. How about you, Brent? Um, I, I have to go back a long way. I would say 2001, A Space Odyssey. It just, the whole movie freaked me out that these artificial intelligence would finally decide that maybe humans aren't as valuable as they are. And I just, that just blew my mind. <laughs> now, this is my kind of stupid question. It always has to come up. It's, it's sort of about tech. And I'm not saying aliens have ever been here, but if aliens were in space, if aliens could get within our view, will we even know they're there? Do you think tech that would allow interstellar travel would also allow cloaking devices? You know, it's 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 hard to know what I, for sure. I mean, we think we would be able to do that. We send so many other things. What I do know is that another civilization so far, far away is going to have to spend a massive amount of you know their own energy and you know resources to come here. They're not going to land on a farm field, say hi to the farmer, get back on their ship, and go home. Okay, so they're going to come and study. They're going to be here for a while. Um, so I think we would somehow make contact. But, you know, we're sending out signals of, as everybody knows, TV shows from the 50s. Maybe they're just monitoring from far away. <laughs> they are. I guess because of light years, it'd be like really behind in what's happening down here. Um, and I guess one yeah. last question before I let you go, especially because we have some students listening. Someone wants to work for NASA. That is their dream. What do they do? So I would suggest I actually started working for NASA as a student. So we have many internships to apply for. Uh, they can be in the summer, fall, or spring. They have a variety of different options. And that's the best way to kind of get your foot in the door. You make connections. You actually, it helps to benefit you also to see what you like to do as a career. You might actually find something you don't like. <laughs> and you may want to try a different one next at the next internship. But that is really the best way to get your foot in the door at NASA. Well, hey, guys, thank you so much for coming on today and telling us all about the Flight Demonstrator Project, what you're doing with Boeing, how you're trying to save the world a little bit with longer wings on aircraft. I love, I love to hear it. I'll let you get back to your conference. Thank you so much for answering all our questions. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Take care. Good stuff. Good guys. Always, always like this, the smart kids over at NASA. But what I like about NASA is that like, there's no question ever too dumb that you ask them. They, they will give you a well-thought answer to anything. And I've tried my hardest. Trust me. They are uh, without fail. Um, speaking of technology, little technology that I'm creeped out by. Meanwhile, take a look at these guys right here. So this video says a versatile robo dog that runs through a sandy beach at three meters per second. And this is the video somehow demonstrating that, which to me is a robot dog using a balancing cable still on, if you know robotics. Uh, and it's just walking in a circle. It's just marching in a circle. That thing is not running three meters. 
I hope it can't run three meters. Do you think it can run three meters? You saw the one in the truck yard I showed the other day. Wild. I don't know. I hear the batteries underneath those, by the way, in case you find one on top of you. Read that on Reddit. Um, Got to tip the band. Do you remember we mentioned AIT's Global Transportation Market Report earlier in the show? Capacity and pricing trends, air, ocean, and trucking, economic insights, extra, etc. Well, what do you do once you have that useful data analysis? You turn insight into action, partner with AIT's global network of subject matter experts, and they'll design a supply chain solution tailored to your needs. Get started today at AITWorldwide.com. But baby, it's time to call the hogs. It is time to call the hogs. It's time for me to go back to school. It's time for me to go to University of Arkansas. It's time to talk to Brian Fugate, David Dabrowski, and the students at the University of Arkansas. Give them a big round of applause as they come on the show. Welcome, everybody. Hey, how are you, Dooner? Hey, we'll fix, Dooner. <laughs> I, I, hey, I, now I'm one of you, too. I came home from Christmas break, and I had this waiting for me in the mail, and, I, you know, I shed a little bit of a tear, and I was so excited. What an honor to have this supply chain management honorary degree. I appreciate it so much, guys. Hey, no, that's fantastic. Hey, we appreciate your support and all you do. Does that at least get me to, like, a game next season? <laughs> I'll tell you what, you can sit in on one of my classes. How's that? <laughs> oh, oh, I would love to. We should do that. Would be that would be awesome to do an on location one of these from your classes and really get immersive with what you do. And let's get into that. First of all, let's just set the table. What what is the program? What do y'all represent here? Awesome. Well, thanks for asking. And by the way, I'm sure you would be the best guest speaker I have ever had in class, no doubt. So that come anytime. I'll come anytime. Yeah, so, uh, so we're here today to talk about our Master's of Science in Supply Chain Management. We've got some of our awesome learners here, and of course, my boss, our department chair, uh, Dr. Brian Fugit. Um, we have two offerings of our program now, which is a great expansion. We have our executive blended format, where folks come to Northwest Arkansas five times per semester to meet on Saturdays and engage with our faculty and their fellow learners. And then on the off weeks, of course, they have content delivered online. Uh, and that's where these folks came from. So these are just like all-star supply chain leaders. I mean, I could hardly wait for you to hear from them. You're going to be like, gosh, I wish that Doberkowski guy would be quiet, which is what they say on Saturdays too, by the way. But anyway, and then we also have now uh, our fully 100% online masters uh, that started about six months ago. So we're able to take what we do here in Northwest Arkansas to the world, which has just been fantastic. Wow. Well, before we talk to these students, Brian, what are you making sure that he teaches these? What's the curriculum over there? What are you guys, what are you guys learning about? <laughs> <laughs> no, David's, David's an all-star teacher. He's a fantastic teacher. And, and, and he's done a really good job designing this program in such a way that it's comprehensive. It's integrated supply chain management. So they, they hit on each of the pieces in the end supply chain management. We certainly hit on you know planning and source sourcing, procurement, logistics, manufacturing and service, and how all of that integrates together. And then we overlay it with things like risk and resilience, finance, supply chain finance, and uh, sustainability, and then lots of technology. Very, very cool. Well, let's talk to some of these students. David, there's a gentleman that's sitting right in front of you. Um, introduce yeah. yourself. Yeah, go ahead, folks. Hey, my name is Lawrence Hunter. I work uh, in the LTL Finance Division at J.B. Hunt. I'd say, like, one of my favorite things about the program is, you know, that everything we learn isn't in a vacuum. It all you, always relates, you know, to have practical application within, uh, within the business world. Interesting. So um, were I'm you... Anna 
well, hold on, I have just one follow-up question. Were, were you were you at JB Hunt before you joined the program, or were you at um, JB Hunt and you're like, you know what, I want to take this to another level, and I need the education to do it? I've been at uh, JB Hunt for about five months when I started the program, and I think that you know I saw this as you know the next step to uh, to further my career within JB Hunt. You know, there isn't a better you know supply chain program, and there's not you know a better supply chain company to be at. And I think it was just the, uh, the perfect match for me. Nice. Yeah. If you see Shelly walking around over there, say hi to her for me. Um, how, about, how, about the, how about the girl next to you? I'm Anna Kesterson. I went to the University of Arkansas and graduated with a bachelor's degree in supply chain management. And then the next year I started my master's program. So I graduate in May and I work for Mars Care supporting the Walmart account. Oh, wow. So what what made you decide to go for master's? What is sort of your ambition in this? Do you want to go work for you want to go for work for NASA? You want to be the next big girl boss? Where what are you looking at? Yeah, um, well, I really love the undergrad program. I learned so much and um, a lot of valuable things. So I just decided right out of college, I wanted to go ahead and get my master's. Uh, and I will say, I do think it helped me get the job that I have now. And it's definitely helped me grow a lot in my career so far. So very cool. How about how about next to you? I'm Sarah Pickle. I currently work at Uber Freight, Ooh. and this is my first year in the master's program. I graduated Arkansas in 2020 with the supply chain degree, and then that was a very interesting year to enter the industry and kind of put in perspective how much more there is for me to learn and grow and kind of evolve with the industry. So decided to come back for all two. So what is the difference between the, like the regular program and the, and the master's program? I think the regular program, you really have to understand the basics, a lot of definition, terminology. But when you're in the master's program, it really is stuff that you are learning and taking to work the very next day and applying. Interesting. And how, how, why a digital freight brokerage? There's a lot of companies out there. There's a lot of choices. Uber Freight, there's great guys over there like Bill Driegert. Why, why pick them, though? I'm legacy Transplace, and I really enjoyed they had a rotational program, so I got to experience the data side of things, implementation, and then operation side, and I really wanted to get that full circle, and I love that they offered that program, and I've been happy there ever since. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, how about you gentlemen in the back? Hasn't anyone ever warned you that supply chain is really stressful? They do it really quick. So we're really excited about Sarah because Sarah is kind of a, a legacy. Like uh, she has a lineage with our master's program because a fellow that she works with at Transplace, uh, Uber Freight now, um, Austin Conley, was in our very first group, our very first cohort. And Sarah heard about the program from Austin and she must have respected him a little bit um, because, uh, you know, she was really excited to come. So we're, we're super excited about this this family, you know, that, that we're creating. So. Well, no, you got some smart. You got some smart kids up in the front. How about in the back? Yeah. Uh, hey, I'm Austin. Austin. Hey, Blair. Austin. Uh, I work at uh, Walmart. I work in the for Walmart US as a uh, retail merchant, uh, and I started, I guess, the degree here, the master's program, in the first year. And I started to kind of I guess, expedite my career and learn more kind of about supply chain in the broad sense, outside of just uh, I guess retail buying and procurement, uh, to kind of understand where my role. Uh, falls within the entire uh, chain. 
Interesting. You, you know, one thing about Walmart that's that's really cool, and you're probably aware of this, is that a truck, a company truck driving job, as far as those goes, that's like the heart. That's like the University of Arkansas. That that is the higher upper mm-hmm. echelon of getting a driving job. Walmart does a great job with their drivers. What what's your ambition though? So you're getting higher education now. You're learning. You want to. You're understanding this whole field. Where do you see yourself in? I don't know, five or ten years. Oh, five or ten years. That's a lot of years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Especially years, if you're counting the packs too, right? It's like, please don't take as long as the last two did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I see myself, I guess, for one, having my master's degree by that point. Uh, that would be optimal. Uh, but career wise, I, uh, I guess working up uh, through the merchant levels and kind of becoming, be, I guess, 10 years from now, I'd like to see be, be an expert, I guess, in kind of global sourcing and, and procurement. Um, I do like it's within Walmart. I like to stay with the, the company. Interesting. And how about you? This is a good thing for Austin Duner. Yeah. <laughs> the programs helped me uh, kind of open up the door into Walmart uh, coming from uh, another city uh, within the state. But it's kind of opened up the door to move up here to northwest Arkansas uh, and kind of surround myself with experts in supply chain. And people are really passionate about it. And it's really done wonders uh, already. Oh, no, listeners, if you're paying attention, have you have you been listening to what the students have been saying? All of them are employed at these major companies. Well, in this master's program, one of the biggest benefits of college isn't just the education. It is the networking. It is meeting these pe- meeting people and your peers who work in companies. Now, look, I remember when I went to college, no, like nobody really had jobs in the industry. I wanted to go in like they kind of knew this guy who knew that guy. But it was a much bigger challenge hearing that all of you. It's like being at your own mini conference or something. You all you all know each other. How about the one student in the back that I did not I haven't had a chance to speak with yet? Um, my name is Michael Vaughn. I'm a little bit different than everyone else here. I actually did my undergraduate here in biomedical engineering oh. and then did mechanical engineering research. So started out and started at J.B. Hunt with my career through um, really whenever I graduated, I had surgery on my knee and was able to work with my schedule, not necessarily intending to stay there. Through them kind of continuing to work with me and grow my career, I continued to grow in that space and really started to love the transportation and supply chain um, aspect. Then come this past year, um, I ended up meeting Dr. Dobrikowski and Dr. Fugit, and they came up to the uh, campus there to talk about the program and Really, from that day, I was hooked and wanted to get in. I think I applied that night um, and since then have just enjoyed the program, loved the applicability within my work and being able to continue to grow there. Currently, I'm a pricing analyst for um, J.B. Hunt, so uh, I've seen a lot of growth through the program and being able to continue to apply that to what I do at the company. Wow, really? And what do you? Where do you intend to take this this major? This major, you know, are you just trying to learn more about it, or or you have um, other ambitions within supply chain? What really interests you? I'm curious now because of of the the major shift that you had. But I mean, it can happen to anyone. I went to school for music technology, but yeah, I got a degree um, in supply chain management. No, <laughs> I think um, engineering initially was uh, a way to think deeper um, and. That isn't always 
just tied to engineering. Um, and I'm able to kind of transfer that over into this space more so to be able to better myself in areas that maybe weren't my initial spot that I wanted to be in, um, but also continue to um, better my company through things that I'm able to take away from stuff like this program. So I think it's just kind of mutually beneficial um, for me where I work and the program here. So I, I've really enjoyed being able to take that away. I hope to continue to grow in that space, um, potentially help others be able to um, be a leader within our company there at JB Hunt and just continue to grow overall. That is so cool. David, so I'm noticing a theme in talking to you, and I, I kind of mentioned it. They all have they all have jobs. They're all in the industry. It creates this big networking opportunity. But I'm curious too, what's the workload like? How do how do all these students here, you know, manage to have these great full time jobs, but also enrich their minds? Yeah, well, both? thanks for bringing that. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Dooner. Uh, our program is designed for working professionals. Um, the the only folks who are not working when they leave our program are folks who choose not to work. Um, the profile is 99% are fully employed. So with that in mind, you know, we have designed the program to be very flexible. They can work when they need to work. Uh, and they can also work at a pace that's reasonable enough, I, I would say, but I'm a professor, so I'm biased, right? But I think the workload is reasonable enough to not only allow them, but actually encourage them and accelerate uh, their career, apply what they're learning in the workplace. You know, these guys know when, when I end every class, I always say, you know, I, I hope you can do something now because I teach from eight till noon, right? So it's like 12.05 when I'm finished. I'm like, I hope we do something now at 12.05 that you couldn't do at eight o'clock in the morning. And I hope you take that on Monday morning to the workplace. And if you can't, then let's hang out at lunch and let's talk about that because we need to figure it out, right? So uh, I think that's a lot of it. Um, it's also a lot of um, like team-based work. Uh, you know, we use a lot of simulations in, in class. We use a lot of case, case studies and and real industry projects. So it gives them an opportunity to work outside of the classroom too. Again, in a little bit more flexible way, um, you know, when they can uh, you know, suit their schedules. And it reflects the workplace, man, right? I mean, we work in teams. Very few of us work alone, right? Not even Brian and I work alone, right? I think it's cool that Michael brought up that we met at J.B. Hunt because, you know, people always ask professors, what do you guys do when you're not in the classroom? Well, there's no ivory tower here. Like, Brian and I hang out at J.B. Hunt. We, we hang out at Walmart. We hang out at Tyson. We, we hang out at 1800 CPG firms around, you know? So that, that's where you can find us in the summers. I, that is that that is so that is so cool. So uh, now I'm curious about the students here. So th they're they're young minds, but they're also working professionals, right? So you've been in this, you have some education, but you also have some real world action. So let's let's start over on on the left over here. What what do you what are you curious about about supply chain, and what do you uh, or what has made you curious once you started learning about supply chain, and how do you think they're going to evolve in the relatively near future? Because we're kind of at an inflection point, I think. <laughs> well, I think the talk of the town is technology, and we're starting to see the self-driving trucks, which I did a presentation over that in my undergrad and predicted, like, maybe, just maybe it would happen in 2027. And so the fact that it's already happening makes me very excited to see where things are going, because it just feels like that it's leading the industry, and it excites me to see what 
new ideas and innovations are going to be in our future. Interesting, you know, and, and look, I've been um, in Torx autonomous truck, Plus's autonomous truck. Um, I've dealt with the locomation people, and when you're inside one, you know, there's the safety drivers and everything, but you wouldn't know it wasn't a real driver except for the fact that it's like maybe overly polite. A lot of people are passing you. It doesn't want to go over the speed limit. Or, you know, drive. I'm from Massachusetts, so it doesn't drive like a, a masshole like me, and it makes me a little angsty. But other than that, like, uh, yeah, it's pretty impressive technology. How about you? Uh, what 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 do you think? is really cool or what surprised you and what do you think is going to change? Uh, yes. Uh, so something really cool about supply chain uh, it, it's kind of kept me hooked is that it's such a young field uh, study and so it, it was a lot of room to have an impact uh, to, to grow and learn it and eventually grow into a role having a significant impact on the on the industry and the study. Um, where I think supply chain is going at least within kind of procurement role uh, which is my area of interest with kind of be technology for one, but kind of striking that balance between technology and uh, kind of taking care of your, your people, kind of finding that, that mix, because uh, the whole chain runs on the, the people that are like, doing the jobs. Uh, you can only replace so much of that. Uh, so I think the firms that are going to be really successful in the future are the ones that really strike that balance uh, between technology and people. Yeah, AI and automation too. That, especially you know, with what you're seeing with ChatGPT and the evolution of where AI is going, is just um, kind of mind blowing. A little bit scary and a little bit fascinating too. But knowledge is is power. Um, who else? Who else is was curious about something that they that they've started to learn supply chain? What do you think about the future? I think one thing that um, I think is really you know changed in the supply chain field, especially you know with the coronavirus pandemic, is you know taking a more holistic view of the supply chain rather than um, you know looking, you know, two steps upstream or, you know, two steps downstream rather than, uh, you know, mostly dealing with, you know, your immediate or uh, upstream and downstream trading partner. And, you know, seeing how it all, um, you know, connects to each other is something that I think has, you know, gained prominence, especially, you know, in the last few years. Absolutely. And I mean, that transparency and connectivity is something that, um, especially in a very fragmented world of supply chain with so many intermediaries, has always been a challenge. It's probably always going to be one, but it does seem like we're singeing that gap and, and tech is helping. And, uh, you know, in some ways, consolidation is as well. What about, uh, let's ask the professor, let's ask the doctor. Doctor, what do you think? Come on, David. What's, what's yeah. happening? What's going to happen yeah. in five years from now? We're going to all be ruled by robots? <laughs> yes, we will. No, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I really, uh, you know, I'm sitting here doing it. I'm thinking about a million different things. Uh, you know, it strikes me when I hear Austin talk about his interest in procurement, and it, it makes me think about how, you know, in another semester, he's going to be in the classroom with Professor Remco Van Hoek, who's one of the leading, you know, sourcing, you know, ex uh, experts in the world, literally. You know, this guy was CPO of Disney Europe. I, I, Austin, I'm sure, can hardly wait, right, to sit in on, on Remco's, you know, global sourcing course. And, and I'm thinking about, you know, what Lauren's saying here with more holistic view of, of supply chain. And a big part of that, of course, is sustainability and ESG. And Brian does a lot of work in that area. But we also have awesome instructors, incredible thought leaders uh, that we're able to bring to folks, uh, bring to students through our online program, like Sherry Heinich from IBM, who's teaching our sustainability course, leading that uh, sustainable supply chain. And Professor Andy Baltrop, who's on Freightways all the time, right, uh, talking about these issues. So it's really cool, um, you know, to hear that they're so interested in these topics because, you know, they're going to hear from thought leaders like Daniel Stanton and faculty like Chris Hofer and Rod Thomas and a million others, Mark Scott. I could go on and on and on. I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple people that I'll hear from, which I deserve to hear from them for that. But, um, you know, it's just it's really, really cool. I mean, in terms of the future, 
Yeah, I think, uh, well, shoot, right? That brings up our risk and resilience course that we have uh, taught by Professor Ayana Shaheen, um, which is an awesome course that addresses this very topic. When you think about the future, a big part of that is, you know, how are we resilient but still make money, okay? Because resiliency is not free. Um, and, you know, developing strategies and approaches uh, that balance, you know, resiliency and reasonable risk assessments is a big part of what we have to do moving forward. And, and we've, we're lucky to have one of the leading experts in the world on the faculty uh, teaching about this stuff and a course that's dedicated to it. Yeah, no, and I love that you bring the business aspect of it too, because there's idealism, but I, idealism has to meet commerce, right? And idealism has to compete with other technologies or other um, modes of transportation or other fields or whatever it is you're designing. It has to compete with what people already have available. And unless it gets regulated out of the way, you're going to have to deal with those challenges and be realistic about them. So I'm glad you keep that up in the forefront, but let them dream too. Let me ask you, David, how, <laughs> let me ask you. Professor Tyler's supply chain finance course, then dreaming's over. Right, <laughs> David, let's change the future for some of our listeners. If they want to apply, how do they go about doing so? That's terrific. Well, Duner, thanks for asking. We happen to have a, uh, an upcoming information session next week on February 1st. Um, you know, you can always find us very easily. Just Google or search on Supply Chain Management Masters, University of Arkansas. You go up to the top of the screen, there will be a link to our February 1st session. The website's really robust. Nathan Bramwell, our marketing manager, is just, and uh, Kara Patterson, uh, our, our uh, uh, operations director, has just done a phenomenal job of building out the website and, and you know making it easy for prospective learners to come learn about us. Man, so cool. I want to scan that barcode. If you want me to come down there and talk ever, let me know. I'd be happy to come down on campus. We can set something up, but I love the sign. I've got my own right here before I let you go. Obviously, you got to lead us in a call in the hogs chant, right? So kick us off, David. All right. Come on, dude. Here we go. Bags, go scan that QR code. Rewind this tape if you haven't done it yet. Thank you, guys. I'll catch up with you soon. And once again, I, you know, I appreciate this so much. Take care. Congratulations. Take care, everybody. And good luck to all you students out there. Thank you. See you later. Really cool, though. Really, I love the program. I mean, don't you guys love that? And I love what I heard right there. That all of these students are working in there, and that's like that's like a superpower of networking, especially if you want a job in these companies. And we're talking about JB Hunt, we're talking about Uber Freight, you know? Um, and those companies too, they all talk. They got like a little partnership going on. But you know what, everybody, it's Friday, so it's a little good news, bad news. Bad news and good news. All right, good news, good news, you're the ATA. Bad news, you just ran up against AI. Let's play the tape. What does AI think about the truck driver shortage? Yes, according to the American Trucking Association. The industry is facing a shortage of around 80,000 drivers as of 2021, which is expected to increase to 160,000 drivers by 2028. The ATA is a lobbying group backed by the large trucking companies. 
What do truck drivers say about a supposed truck driver shortage? Some truck drivers and trucking industry experts argue that the shortage is not caused by a lack of available drivers, but rather by poor pay and working conditions. Overall, it is clear that there is a ongoing debate about the supposed truck driver shortage and the reasons behind it. Some see it as a real issue, while others see it as a lack of willingness by the trucking companies to provide better pay and conditions. That AI right there, wicked smart, really scary too. Glad that wasn't a robot dog talking to me. All right, good news, you've got a lot of eggs. The bad news is you had a lot of eggs. Roll tape. We're back again. Today we're going to make a special That's dish. That's not it. Everybody's asking Oh, wait, I jumped ahead of you guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Amazon, check them out. Oh, no, I didn't. Did I? Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Bad news. You're on the road and want to eat well. All right. We want to do the eggs. Do the eggs. Go the eggs. Bad news. All right. Bad news. You have the eggs. Look at what happened. That's an expensive problem. That's an expensive problem. But if you do have some eggs, you can cook. We'll go, we'll go to the other one. Sorry, I jumped ahead on you guys. Um, bad news, you're on the road and you want to eat really well. Good news, you're TikToker Dennis J, and you've got a banging in-cab kitchen. Look at how this guy cooks. We're back again. Today, we're going to make a special dish. Everybody's asking about the table that I use from Amazon. Check them out. So, before we get into it, there's a lot of ways you could do it. I'm going to make ceviche today, but I'm going to make it one of the most simplest and easiest ways. We're going to make this quick. The limes, we're gonna cut the limes. We got everything. Okay, so we're here at Publix. As I realized, we're gonna make too much of each. We're gonna go and get some containers. We're here. Uh, we're gonna do this one. Six cups, we're good. We're gonna add our juice. Wait, we're gonna add the onions. Preferably, drink some of the fresh tomato some parsley slash cilantro some fresh shrimp from Publix it's already cooked you can use uncooked I'm gonna use cooked take the tail out taking the shrimp we're cutting it this is what we got right now we're gonna stir it up real good get all the juices in there and we're gonna let it sit in the fridge for about an hour let all the juices marinate in there. You want a little bit of salt. We're taking it out of the fridge. We're ready. Tostadas. I don't even like shrimp, and that looks good. Just throw the shrimp out. Can't forget about the jarritos. Thank you, Lord, for another day. Thank you for everything that you provide us with. Thank you for this food. Thank you for all the blessings you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's see what this is about. I like his gear too. I like that, that oh my tape, God. cutting dealia. Man. <laughs> Yo, I'm not even lying. You gotta try this. So fresh. Man, this is it right here, man. Thank you. Yeah. Well, check out Rooster. He's been putting some uh, recipes up on backthetruckup.com. That made me hungry. Good news. My load of uh, cotton candy is on the way. Bad news. On Saturday, CBP officers examined a tractor trailer manifesting a commercial shipment of cotton candy, discovered 3,373 pounds of marijuana concealed inside, an concealed inside the cotton candy with an estimated street value of $7.5 million. It makes me wonder here, um, what do the drug dealers do? Like, how did this not get intercepted with the cotton candy? They, they just eat it? Give it with the, uh, 
Give it for the munchies with the drugs. I don't know. One last thing here. Take a look at this gorilla. This bad news. You have your gorilla in front of your shop. Looks great. This guy sold it. It's supposed to go off to Africa. But then this dude shows up in his truck. Is it rolling? Let's see this guy. Here he comes in his truck. And look what he's going to do. He's going to make off with Harambe. He's got wire cutters over here. He's looking. He's creeping. He's opening his thing up. He's probably been eyeballing that gorilla for a while. I bet he's been doing stakeouts on that, making sure uh, there's no other gorillas in the mist. Rip Diane Fossey. And he just picks this thing up. Apparently, it was like a 500-pound gorilla. It's like six feet tall. But here's what's got me curious. So the owner of the shop, they're offering a $10,000 reward for that gorilla. But there's no way that that gorilla is worth $10,000. So I asked the logistics community well, what they think is actually inside that. Uh, Zofia Agnes Nagy, she says, the secret to solving the global supply chain crisis or simply drugs stashed away. Yeah, maybe the stuff inside that cotton candy. Andy Ellington said, um, clearly it's a new attraction for whole 13 at Goonie Golf. It's in Chattanooga, if you know it. Dehan Ganji said, no question, it's eggs. The ashes of Hermery. And uh, Susan Bradley says, classified documents. Take care. Don't be a stranger.